2022 marks 40 years since the release of Madonna's first single. To commemorate this, Warners will be revisiting her back catalogue with selections curated by Madonna herself. For this series of Inside the Groove, I'm joined by industry experts, also Madonna fans, as we work through the singer's albums one by one, episode by episode, to discuss how they were created, what they achieved, and what we can expect from the upcoming re-releases. Like a Prayer was released on 21st of March 1989 and became the moment when Madonna was finally recognised as a songwriting and production master player, well at least by some. With 15 million worldwide sales as of 2020 and having reached number one in practically every country where charts are available, it's also considered by some of her fans, including myself, to be the very pinnacle of her career at least up to that point. With three international singles, plus a further three tracks released in specific territories, this album would contain Madonna's first duet, at least on one of her studio albums, and this would be with a person that many regard as her male counterpart, Prince. It would also be her final work with long-term collaborator Stephen Bay, and of course further work with Patrick Leonard. I'll be giving special attention to the song Oh Father, one of Madonna's most beautiful ballads which would see life way beyond its original 1989 release, and I'll also be talking with the experts about that stunning Herb Ritz photography for the cover shoot and the impeccable art direction for the sleeve which saw Madonna assault yet another one of our senses. Joined by music journalist and biographer Lucy O'Brien, fashion photographer Jonathan Daniel Price and graphic designer Peter Falloon, we're going to give you the whole story behind Madonna's fourth studio album and discuss what we might be able to look forward to in the upcoming reissue of this undeniable classic. So, for now, sit back, relax. I'm down on my knees, I want to take you there as we go inside the room. Inside the Grove merchandise, well, there are new Like a Prayer themed t-shirts up now, complementing the You Can Dance and Who's That Girls ones, plus more producer t-shirts, including a mere waist one at last. And there are deals, including a Black Friday offer. Buy a producer's t-shirt and get another t-shirt for just £15 if you use the code Black Friday. Honestly, they're such good designs, check them out, www.insidethegroove.co.uk. So, we all have our favourites, and Like a Prayer is mine. And it's not that I don't love all of Madonna's albums, but often our attachment to an era is to do with where we were in our own lives when we first connected with it. And for me, I was 19 years old, skinny, chiselled jaw. (laughs) I'd come out six months earlier, and I was living with friends in Bristol. And on weekends, I worked in a gay bar called The Griffin, which had a CD player that took a cassette of six discs, which were loaded at the start of the evening and set to play at random. One of the discs I always popped on was Erasure's The Innocents, and the other was Madonna's Like a Prayer. And when I started every shift, I turned off the random function and just played it through from start to finish. 
The open reverse guitar and door slam of the title track began a journey that continued with Express Yourself, the Prince duet, Love Song, and into ballads such as Oh Father and Spanish Eyes, ending with that odd backwards guitar and choir sound of act condition, just as the bar started to get busy, because in those days, everyone was out by 8pm. And by the time the pub closed at 11 and I'd bottled up and cleaned and left with the other guys, we would head towards the Oasis nightclub in Park Row, where we would knock on the door. A hatch would open. We would be checked over to make sure that we were gay. I mean, we were twinks at the time. I'm sure it wasn't necessary. And we also were checked that we didn't have any women with us because women weren't allowed in the club. And what we would do is we would enter and pay and head downstairs and head straight out to the garden and over to the fence where our female friends were waiting and we would let them in that way. And the bouncer never came down to check, but we would be there with all of them then in the club and and we would just dance to Madonna because she would be played two, three, maybe even four times a night. Maybe it was the club mix of Like a Prayer with its Oh My God intro or Shep's incredible house mix of Express Yourself. Madonna was our hero and our saviour, and these songs were new and fresh. And even now, 32 years later, I still get the same tingle of excitement when I hear those songs. Many of those friends have now gone, and you know, some of them didn't even make it to the end of that year. And those were tough times back then. But I'm so proud that we danced and sang to those beautiful tunes. We'd watch the videos over and over and learn the moves, and I'm not lying when I said we would even mime laying seaweed on each other when Cherish was played. The album is perfect, and my memories may now be in perfect tense, but it's great to be able to share them with you. And of course, in those pre-internet days, it wasn't easy to keep a track on her. I think I'd almost forgotten about Madonna. She was off the radar in 1988, busy with her play Speed the Plough, in which she appeared on Broadway throughout most of the year. And she used the opportunity to go off-grid with her kind of old-fashioned belief that it was possible to be overexposed. And it worked, because when she returned at the start of 89 with long dark hair and an incredible new single, the world was ready for her. And she did us fans proud. The likes of Tiffany and Debbie Gibson and Kylie Minogue had filled the airwaves with bubblegum pop that emulated Madonna's sound, but when she returned, it was with a mature album of gospel rock, 70s funk, and even 60s psychedelia, and a menage of pop house remixes to secure her hold on the dance floor. And she had a maturity to her songwriting and recording, and people could no longer dismiss her as a music industry puppet. Finally, they sat up and listened. Now, I'm joined by Lucy O'Brien now, author of the Madonna biography, Like an Icon. Lucy, I've said it's my peak. What about you? Yeah, um, it's one of my favourite albums. I mean, um, it, it kind of, I changed my mind between Like a Prayer and Ray of Light as mm. to my favourite album. Um, but, you know, I was brought up a Catholic, so I, um, I absolutely got it when Like a Prayer was first released. And I never forget, you know, I was um, working on a magazine at the time and this um, cardboard envelope arrived and I opened it and pulled out this huge whiff of patchouli oil. (laughs) (laughs) And then I look at, and then there's Madonna um, (laughs) on the cover and I think, blimey, you know, her hair's dark brown and she's singing about Catholicism and patriarchy and bringing in feminism. And I was just blown away. I thought, wow, you know, this is this is her artistic statement now. And I think what's so fascinating about Like a Prayer, if you think of Who's That Girl and the jump, the artistic jump from Who's That Girl to Like a Prayer, it's massive. 
Yeah. And, you know, most people have an album in between, don't they, before they reach, <laughs> reach that kind of artistic point. But it was so fully realised. Um, and once again, she was working with Pat Leonard and they had such a great vibe. He said, you know, we're in the studio with her. He said it was like being on fire, you mm. know, and he said they had a real yin and yang chemistry, argued a lot. Mm. Until she showed him the cover of True Blue and said, whose face is on that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then she also worked with Stephen Bray, again, you know, with the, with the up-tempo numbers like Express Yourself, which he said is like a feminist call to action. You know, he's really, really deeply proud of that one. And I interviewed quite a few of the, the main contributors to that, Pat Leonard, Stephen Bray, Donna DeLore, um, Guy Pratt, who played that wonderful bass line at the end of Like a Prayer. He's such and a character, isn't he? He's... He really is. Yeah, I mean, they got on really well in the studio. He, he's sort of English cheeky chappy. Yeah. Um, you know, a bit of a punk background. And um, he found that the more he kind of took the mickey out of her, the more she liked it. Um, <laughs> Because uh, she likes people standing up to her. So in terms, in, in the studio, when it came to Like a Prayer, um, he said it was almost like an out-of-body experience. You get get to the end of the song and he, and he was playing and he and, and she was just really um, shouting at him to like, keep going, guy, keep going, guy, just go for it, go for it. And then he just went nuts with this bass line. And he said it was just amazing that the whole thing was kept on the single. Then, you know, obviously there was a good vibe in the studio. So um, later they went out. But in the evening, she was in a different mood. She was much more subdued. And he said she'd, she'd been feeling quite sad because she missed New York and she missed a lot of her friends who mm-hmm. had of AIDS. And she would, you know, then the AIDS crisis was just immense and, and mm-hmm. heartbreaking. Um, so I think at the time um, she wanted an early night, but she said, you can you can have my limo, you know, go for it. <laughs> and he thought, well, here I am, you know, cheeky cockney chappy, you know, I'm in the limo. Um, and he just got incredibly drunk. He said he just went to, you know, like a load of nightclubs. Shameless, absolute shame. <laughs> you, obviously, you were a music journalist at the time, and this might have been the first time that you realised people were actually starting to take Madonna seriously. Musos were sort of going, okay, so she's... Yeah. She she has got some talent. Yeah, you know, there was a definite turnaround. Um, mm. you know, up until that point, people just took, sort of talked about her as a media manipulator and and yeah, she can sing a bit and she can dance a bit and you know. Um, but you know, with like a prayer, uh, there was almost unanimous agreement that she's an artist and it's coming through now and it's coming through really strongly not just in like a prayer and express yourself, but also that wonderful song Promise to Try, mm. which is so simple and so heartfelt and just kind of um, dedicated to her mum and who we know died when she was five. And Pat Leonard said to me, you know, the thing that was extraordinary about that track was they just played it once in one take and that's what you hear is the one take. Mm. Um, and he said that's what's different about I mean I know people talk about the good old days blah but there you know there is something special about those albums that are a real one-to-one rapport with a producer like like prayer and like ray of light you know when she when she later worked with William Orbit um 
because it's not about a songwriting team in a room all trying to compete for beats or, you know, putting songs together with fragments. You know, it's what you hear on something like the album Like a Prayer is a whole process. It's a whole journey, an emotional journey. Listeners of this podcast will already be familiar with the story of the Like a Prayer album. I've covered the songs Express Yourself, Cherish, Dear Jesse, and Keep It Together already. I've yet to do the title track because, well, the multi-track has yet to leak and I'm saving it until I can play you all those elements. But Pat Leonard has spoken a fair bit about the recording process of that song and others. In fact, Madonna was so busy at the time of the album's release, some of the publicity was done by him and Stephen Bray. And that would seem quite normal now, I guess, but back in 1989, having the producer and co-writer talk was quite a rarity. Patrick has often spoken of how quickly they wrote those songs and this has led to a misbelief that the whole album was created and finished in two weeks. It wasn't. The earliest recordings happened with the Prince track in March of 1988. Madonna travelled to Minneapolis and they came up with some ideas but she hated the cold. So they sent tapes backwards and forwards working on ideas until they settled on the track that we know today. Now, the majority of the songs with Pat Leonard were recorded before April of 88. Leonard himself has shared a scan of a cassette dated from that month with a couple of demos written by him and Madonna. And we know that the Stephen Bray songs came later with a supposed demo mix of Express Yourself dated October 88. I'm going to talk a little about the sound of the album and the writing process shortly. But now I'm joined by the very knowledgeable Jonathan Daniel Price and Peter Falloon to discuss the cover artwork for the album and the singles that followed. Starting with you, Jonathan, as a photographer, you probably have a lot to say about the cover image. Madonna was so famous, she didn't even need her face on it. But this was just such a transformation from what we'd had with True Blue, right? Yes. I mean, what a transformation this album is on so many levels. You know, this is truly a seminal album. And for me, it's the moment where she steps from being this pop star to really an artist. And you can see that in the artwork so clearly. I, I also think it's important to to really look at the time frame we're working in here. You know, she has just turned 30, recently divorced. And also, side note, she won a Razzie for her part in Shanghai Surprise all around this time. So. In my mind, when I'm thinking about creating visuals for this album, you'd be feeling like it's a make or break moment in a way. You know, she probably still has a lot of confidence. She's come off the back of the biggest selling album for her career. But really, you see that transformation through a new look, a new aesthetic. And I'm guessing that this is the start of public perception that she is the master of reinvention around this time. I'm happy to say we've got a little bit more artwork here than we did in the last studio release. We've got three photographs as part of this collection, and it's another collaboration with Herb Ritz, which makes complete sense because of the incredible artwork he'd already created with her. The cover itself is quite unusual. As you referenced, you know, you don't see her face. It's a detailed shot of Madonna's midriff, and she's got acid wash jeans unbuttoned at the top with exotic jewellery filling the frame and it sort of reminds me of the opulence you see in a cathedral in Italy. People say, and I have read online, that it's some kind of reference to the Rolling Stones Sticky Fingers album, which is very famous too, but personally I don't see that. I feel like this is a completely different piece of artwork. It's quite a complex image. It's not immediately striking in the sense that 
other than her name, you don't really know who it is. And it's not a graphic photograph. I'm somewhat surprised the record label were happy to release this. I understand her fame is, is at a peak here, but considering with her last Udu album, they were uncertain about releasing the image without her actual name on the title. You know, this obviously was a discussion that would have been had at the label. What I love about this photo particularly is her fingers. We see these really unique Madonna fingers, which is, I think, the first time probably we've seen the shape of it. We see it again, this sort of witchy movement in the Rain music video, for example, and in Frozen later in her career. But really, you see this sort of uh, magical movement coming through in the fingers in the photograph. There, I know at the time Madonna was interested in her past. You can obviously hear that in music, but particularly the 1960s. And you can get that feeling, that vintage feeling from the styling and the photographic choices on the artwork. I think this is also shot on 35mm, which means, as I've described in other episodes, it's a smaller negative, it's a narrower frame. So you can see that in the back image in particular. It's a bit more grainy. And with a smaller negative like that, you use a smaller camera. And so you really are able to get a lot more movement in the photograph. You're able to to move yourself as the photographer and the subject can move around a lot more easily rather than, for example, it being on a tripod. So when you look into the album artwork, you see that movement literally because there's images of Madonna dancing. Styling wise, obviously, she's got this incredible aubergine colored crepe silk top with flowing fabric. And it's sort of, uh, you know, there's energy there. It's, it's a bit dark and mysterious. The colors are really perfectly tied together. We've got a sort of sage green background against the blue of her jeans, that top and the white skin. And looking at it for me, this, this really defines the period of 1989. You know, she sets this, this new look of the late eighties, which she changes again very quickly afterwards, as we know, but it's just so sums up that period. And of course the brunette, we see serious Madonna here. And what's interesting about this time is there's a promotional lead story in the British Vogue from February of 89, where she is the cover star. And the opening sentence of that article is a quote from her talking to Herb as he's shooting her, telling him to shoot her as the real her. She says, I want you to do me as the real me. And that's such a great story to coincide with this album, which is all about revealing herself, revealing her past, revealing who she really is in that moment. You know, this isn't the material girl anymore. This is a woman who's stepping into her womanhood. I mean, the fashion is obviously very important here. And the British Vogue shoot was styled by Sarah Jane Hoare, who was the fashion editor at the time. So having someone who's working in British fashion clearly has a huge influence. I'm not sure if the artwork for the album here is styled by her, but the photographs which are taken in the cemetery, which is the image on the back of the album, was styled by her. And and I think you're right. You know, there's if you I was also reflecting on the music from the album. And if you consider what was happening at the time, and yes, this is me researching in retrospect, but bands like Heart or Aerosmith were still in the charts. You know, this is big um synthetic sounds. And on this album, she's really moving towards instrumentation it's it's a it's a different sound now we're no longer 
in the mid 80s and you can see that in the visuals too this isn't the the typical 80s look and in some ways you can see this thread of organic styles and vintage that carries through to the mid 90s with grunge You've said a word there that I really think is important to this album in many ways, organic, the looks, the visuals, mm. everything about it. I've got so much more to ask you about on the photography, but I'm going to go over to Peter now mm. because there's so much to discuss on Like a Prayer. Where, where should we start? Um, it's probably like that actual icon of, that was created, like which <laughs> it's doing all the heavy lifting for who the album is uh, because she didn't have the face present. It had to be, I would assume there had to be a really strong icon. And I mean, it reflects on an awful lot of Catholicism within it. So it's, she knew what she was doing in the music. And I think to brief the designers as well as she did, there is like very church orientated. It's very Catholic, the starburst, the crown. They're all things that you find in any sort of iconography and any um, Catholic church. So to be able to take those very, I mean, they're old fashioned, they're like centuries old, but that she's managed to put them in a way more modern and much more pleasing aesthetic. So like the use of the soft blue and the slight gold of the, the drop shadow behind her, all of the black letter, it softens it ever so slightly, but on like purely production point of view, it's actually, again, like one of the reasons that things move so fast in this period. When we left her last album, which was You Can Dance, and we sort of went through how that was put together, there was a little invention in 1987 called Quark Express, which was the birth of desktop publishing. And essentially it made it possible for you to put a graphic over an image. And I know that sounds revolutionary, but that's where we were. That was a phenomenal thing to be able to do. I know you can do it on your iPhone now, but for you to actually be able to put a graphic over a photo was inspiring. Um, so the person who took the photo will probably have not considered that this was going to be the final crop. So to then have her name over her navel and sort of radiating out the, these beams of light, I don't know how easily those two things would have come together until they were actually in a desktop program and you're able to manipulate it. The same lady again, Jerry Hyden, who'd been responsible for like, I think the majority of the album sleeves, she was the, the art director. So actually a lady called Marco Chase, who did the actual amazing icon. So whether Jerry directed it, I'm not sure, but the actual artwork was done by Margo and she's got an incredible list of like, um, typographic and illustrative, very Germanic and Gothic was her style, but this one was done in sort of late, I think 88 when they were putting everything together. But she's got a name for herself already. She'd done the beautiful typography on Paula Abdul for Spellbound. And she'd done Love Sexy for Prince. So really hand-drawn, really intricate. And in the Madonna icon, I think she just finds that perfect measure between something looking really old-fashioned. And again, it sort of fitted into like the late 80s. It sort of found its niche beautifully. And the fact that it's positioned not centrally, it's just slightly off and it's up, up towards the top. Yeah, it did all of the work that not having her face, it alluded to a church, it alluded to religion and it alluded to like the sound that we were going to hear. So I think a marriage of like three really good designers there all coming together to create something phenomenal. It's really interesting what you just said there. And I would love to speak to Jerry because we don't know how planned this cover was. 
And certainly it's such an unusual idea that it's hard to think that would have been the intention. And you may have hit the nail on the head that it was when they imported this into Quark Express or however they did it. They just thought, hang on, let's shift this up. Let yeah. me do this. Because as, as we all know, new technology makes you think in new ways. And no one would have thought of cropping it there uh, beforehand. I mean, it used to be that an art director would sit there with the, they're like literally two black L shapes and you give yourself a crop physically, like you're placing your um, two L shapes over the image to get the perfect crop. But yeah, being able to do it in computer, you, you, they would have received like loads of files, I would imagine. And as long as you can scan them in and play with them, then the actual album cover is up for debate, which, yeah, it's kind of interesting to think when you've gone from true blue which had all been preordained and they knew exactly what they were going to achieve. I do think there's a looseness to like a prayer and I can probably elaborate on that because that's where the singles all fall apart and it turns into a complete <laughs> mess. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, I, and I would like to bring that up, but I'd like to talk about the typography actually uh, beyond the, the cover because it's so different to True Blue, which was that yeah. handwritten look. And this time it's very, almost feels like it's been done on a big old fashioned Catholic press. Yeah, in, you know, it, it feels hymnal. Um, yeah, <laughs> for anyone who's is that a word, I, and we all know what you mean. So yeah, um, it's the actual book of prayers that you're given. I'm a Catholic, so very <laughs> lapsed, very lapsed. It would be the book that you're given that's on your seat when you come into church. So, like the centering of the, the typography, it's very religious in the, the the choice and the little icon that she's used to divide everything is the cross again. So yeah, I think. Type, typographic wise, she's been very smart and has taken a lead from the kind of things that you would find in a Catholic church. So the biblical references, and then obviously the fact that it's, um, album is dedicated to her mother who taught her to pray. I think that sort of comes into it as well. Like a prayer book, it has that feel to it. And then again, they married that with the patchouli oil that was in the very early release of the album. And like you said before, it was just to give you that. And the thing about patchouli is it's tied to the 1960s, but it's also massively related to incense in the church. So again, I think she found a marriage of those two things. It, you're conjuring up a feeling of that 1960s sort of trippy vibe, but also anyone that's ever set foot in a church will know that smell. And it kind of, it's a little bit haunting. And so I think having that sort of ethereal feel to the whole sort of package and again, the uh, paper that it was printed on was just had that texture and that roughness to it together as a package. It worked really, really well. It, to me, it really suited the music as well. We, we, we say sixties for me, it's the cusp of the sixties and the seventies. There's a few seventies, early, early seventies references in the music, certainly with the Stephen Bray tracks and the long straight hair. I mean, there are pictures of Madonna from 1973 with that same hairstyle. For someone who, you know, makes a whole thing about never looking back, she was really doing it in a very clever way this time. There's an insert, uh, that came accompanied to the original album, which I feel Peter, you'll have an opinion to talk about. It was a very important piece of yeah, paper. Um, I mean, anyone sort of our age who was gay man, possibly the first introduction to AIDS as a topic of conversation. I, I didn't have it in the version that I bought because it was a cassette, but on all of the original albums that went out, there was a pamphlet inside about safe sex. So for Madonna to actually take that step in the name of the gay community, it was such an arm around. And for me, it falls into the category of like being incredibly brave. 
because she was an artist at the peak of her career and the amount of blowback that she got over this, she never, ever faltered. It was like, no, this is my commitment. These were my friends that died and I'm going to get this information out there. Like in the UK, we had that advert of the tombstone falling. It was dark for an 11, 10, 11 year old boy. I pretty much knew that I was of that persuasion. I just assumed that if you were gay, you died of AIDS. That was, mm-hmm. that was your life. So this little passage that she put onto a tiny little bit of paper that went out with the album, it was a, a message of hope that it was like, there are ways around this. There is, there isn't a cure. She was very definite about that, but there are ways to protect yourself. And I think like it took you to the straight community as well, because this album was massively mainstream. And I know in the True Blue album, I talked about the girls that I was friends with growing up, like for them to have received something like that in this album, like it maybe just have made them think differently about this disease. It was seen as a very, very career ending move. It wasn't because it's Madonna and I think she used her power for good. So anytime that anyone ever sort of tries to say, oh, she steals from the gay community and she's always taking, it's like, yeah, but she's bloody given back. And she's done Mm. it consistently and done it in very bold moves. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was just uh, as, as far as like a piece of communication and it it, it was comms PR. Mm -hmm. She did all of the heavy lifting that most of the, like the NHS wasn't doing it in America. It was barely even talked about. There was Madonna putting this message out on a number one album. Jonathan, you mentioned that the, um, cemetery shoot was done for British Vogue, but also included it in the artwork. So I kind of see it as the whole kind of, um, album shoot. We've talked before about how Madonna's face can look very round and feminine. And at times it can be quite pointed and masculine. And the way that Herb has shot her in a lot of these images, including the full length version of the, what became the album crop, she's got quite a witchy pointed face that goes mm. with the straight hair as well. And that's quite a brave move not many not many women want to want to present themselves in that way yeah in a way you could almost see that as an intentional move to not be seen solely as a beauty you know that it's the the obvious showing of depth and i feel particularly with that image at the back um we are again seeing this reference to the late 60s early 70s because the tones of the black and white the blacks are very dense the whites are very white And that kind of technique was very popular in rock and roll photography in the 60s. It makes me think of the tour photography Anna Leibovitz took of the Rolling Stones Mm -hmm. or even earlier images by Irving Penn or Richard Avedon, you know, this classic black and white. And the fact that on the back cover, they've also included the actual frame of the negative. This is the full negative you're seeing and the edges. That as well as for 89 is is a more old fashioned technique. You know, it's, it's this organic idea, whereas the eighties were a lot more about, uh, yeah, clean lines and being very graphic and, uh, poppy, I guess, you know, when Peter mentioned the graphics being so reminiscent of this idea of religion and Catholicism, uh, it really makes me look at the album artwork more clearly in the sense that we are very overstimulated today and we're overstimulated with sexualized images as well. And if you look at this photograph, which combines a lot of different references, and if you look at it with fresh eyes, you can really see how striking it would have been. You know, we've got blue jeans, which are this all American wholesome look, but they're unbuttoned. 
And so there's a sensuality and a tension, which I think is what Madonna does so well, this tension between two things. And, uh, and yeah, I think that's why this artwork is so effective. So let's talk about the singles then. Um, we've got a couple of different versions of the single cover. So the, the two that I can think of is, is the prayer picture. And then there's also the illustration by Christopher and her name is not on that. No, um, again, incredibly, I don't know if it was mistake or brave, but yeah, considering that the album and the single both went out without her face on. So the, I think the first version was the one that Christopher did, obviously mm -hmm. very close to her heart. Um, yeah, that, that single went to press with no name on. And Just very, the initials MLVC. Yeah. And like prayer. And so very rushedly, um, if you are one of the lucky ones, you might not have this. But they obviously had to run out a whole bunch of stickers to stick over the album with Madonna plastered on the top of it. So if you actually have one of the ones without the sticker, you might want to have a little look on eBay for how much <laughs> you might be sitting on there. But yeah, for her to have got that through and mm. like obviously working with the designers, like we've not put her name on, but yet somehow <laughs> it marries perfectly again. Like the job that Christopher did was take quite an authentic looking Catholic image, but it's obviously an ode to his sister, which is quite a beautiful thing. And he's put her initials at the top, which is MLVC. And you just notice like just fallen from the wayside, just before it falls off the page is the P for pen. So I like that little visual joke that was put in there. It's a really sweet little thing, but it's obviously he's done it with love. So I'm glad that it made its way onto like the, the 12 inch. There's the white version, and then I think the 12 inch remixes, they made a gold version, so the background's gold, and then the, the image is, is black. But yeah, as a, as a set of like single covers, they're all very different. The seven inch one was the one that we're familiar with, which is the back of the like prayer sleeve. But again, we've got that contentious thing with somebody listed on the um, album artwork as having colorized the photo. So <sighs> somebody's gone in and like <laughs> colorized it slightly. Not sure it actually adds anything. And it's, again, it's probably just trying to make it look a little bit different to what, what we would then see on the back of the album. But yeah, it's, it was officially done painterly. So it, it, it is a skill and the, the lady is listed as being a photo retoucher, but it is in the oldest sense of like being able to put color on to a black and white image. But yeah, very, very beautiful. All three of them are so different. So let's move on to express yourself. I love the cover. I love the song Express Yourself. Um, and I love the cover. And it, at the time it felt weird because I knew that she had blonde hair and in the picture it was brown hair, which bothered me slightly. <laughs> but I think with, with over 30 years later, I've let that go now. Do you think it's a good design? I think it's horrific. Really? <laughs> <laughs> You've got everything going on here. Yeah. Um, I think it's an introduction of a typeface that doesn't work. So you've got something that we, we've created this ethereal, churchy, 1960s, 70s Catholic. And then this single doesn't, to me, represent the metropolis that Fincher built or the work that Jerry Hyden had done with the album cover. It just sort of falls into this, what is it? It's too many things thrown at the wall. So it's a great photo with movement and energy. And this is when I think design doesn't help photography. If that image had just been allowed to breathe and everything had been a little bit more refined, but again, this is because they could do it. So we were still in that bit. We can do it, but should we? And I think we got there in a couple of years time, which we'll talk about, but yeah, it's to, to me, it, 
doesn't carry on the campaign well. It sort of seems to drop the ball. There's far too many things going on. And then the express yourself handwritten bit, I, I don't understand where that's come from. It just doesn't seem to make graphic sense. I love it because of its kitschness and it fits perfectly into that year of everyone had this desktop powerful publishing device now, but some of the criminalities that were created, hers is not the worst. I understand its place in the design world. There are so many images actually from this time that it didn't end up getting used. And this is one of the setups. I think that we can see it. I actually think it's taken from the same setup as Cherish artwork, but, mm -hmm. um, looking at these images, which you can find online, if you do a little bit of searching, I'm surprised they didn't just use a wide shot from the same shoot because actually mm -hmm. the colors and tones used in the backdrop are lovely and they would have really been quite striking without the graphic elements that are added into this. And also though, discovering this retroactively, this was one of the seven inches I got in that big pile that I found when I was about 14 or 15, I was confused because I'd seen the music video and to me it tied so strongly with this great Gatsby metropolis type of visual. And obviously the single artwork doesn't match that at all. And I think what I loved about Madonna so much when I did really get into her by the late nineties, early two thousands was that every campaign was so cohesive and she so beautifully tied everything together visually with the music. So this whole campaign with the singles kind of confused me a little. But I think it's there in the music as well, because I think, uh, as I'm sure we all know, that when she heard the remix that Shepard and the house mix, she redubbed the video. Although you've got the, the odd thing where you've got the horn players that are actually playing horns in the video. I quite like about the fact that this is not incredibly slick is that by the time I started really becoming interested in music in my mm -hmm. early teens, it was the two thousands. And by that point, the music industry really was a well-oiled machine. Mm -hmm. They knew what they were doing. They were making a lot of money from CD sales. And what I like looking at this time is it feels again, the same word organic. It feels like yeah. time is just rolling and they're figuring out things as they go. And also what is so clear about this period, if you think about Madonna from 1989 to the end of 1990, what an insane career path. And you can oh, see yeah. that with this, you know, she stars in this movie. So she has to dye her hair blonde and go away after doing all this press about now being a brunette. <laughs> and so it looks very different in the video, but all of the artwork that's been shot, she still has brown hair. So I can understand why it might have been difficult to do a more cohesive. We're talking of the hair, we get on to Cherish then, because obviously she had a very different look in the video you get again by that. But as you've just said, Jonathan, that photo was, that's on the cover of Cherish is from the same sessions as the like a pair express yourself again, it's a really stunning picture. I think she looks absolutely beautiful in it. Really beautiful and very different lighting. It seems than a lot of the other images, you know, this is a lot more crisp, but you can kind of see a hint of the styling and it's very much in the same vein as the like a prayer campaign. What's interesting is by this point, you know, we're approaching the end of summer when this is released. So we have quite a few months into the campaign. Of course, it's now a few singles in. And I am surprised by this point that they didn't reshoot for it to match how she looked in that time period, particularly because the video for Cherish, which of course was also shot by her Brits who did all of the photography, is this entirely different look. And she did a cover story for Rolling Stone at the end of 89, I think it was September. So around about the time the single was released, which is the Cherish look. 
So it's the short blonde hair, she's on a beach and it's a playful, uplifting sort of photo shoot, very similar to this 1950s Marilyn look that you get sometimes with Madonna. I get the feeling that it was get it out. I think she was so prolific. This is, I think, is it 11 or 12 singles in the space of two years and three mm. albums? Mm. It would have been like, you'd have be, be playing graphic design catch up. Like I've said that like, there's the introduction of like digital technology, but it's still, you still had to like do an awful lot of work to get the images in. They were high res scans, like done on massive contraptions. So like they probably could have been that the images were all preloaded and there was no budget or no time to get these new images process. I sort of see the journey, but it doesn't visually connect with anything else that she's doing. I think the actual video and the direction and everything that she does performance wise is so tied together, but unfortunately the designers didn't get the memo. It doesn't, doesn't fit. That said, there is some, there is some design on the cherish sleeve, which is a little bit uh, of an improvement on your thoughts, yeah. I guess, on express yourself. <laughs> There's some actual, you know, design and drawing on it. We're sort of back to that, I'll call it church pillar look again, because it's, it's got a bit of a reverence. The fonts and things that have been chosen do feel we're back in that like prayer territory, but yet it's for a song that is probably the most joyous. It's a bit, it's a bit more light and uplifting. So I do like the fact there's lots of white space on the cover and it sort of has that connection at least. And then it's, I'm not sure why it's included, but the really sweet little, um, inclusion of the. Um, flower on the back. I've always thought that was a really nice touch to get hold of something like that in 1989 would actually have been quite difficult. Like stock libraries probably didn't have things like this. So not sure where it's come from, but I just, I've always really liked the fact that there's just this little tiny flower on the back cover, really lovely touch. And again, like you have to have the promo for the main album once it's been released. But again, everything central feels very, um, church orientated and the choice of fonts, but yeah, I think they'd sort of found a bit more of a groove. You even start to get the little icons for like what it's released on. So there's a little icon for like cassette and CD and all those things. So they were getting better. Digital did bring with it some good things because you could just copy and paste. So yeah, I, I, I enjoy Cherish because of mainly because of Herbert's image more than anything else. I feel like we could have a whole other season possibly could happen talking just about the music videos, but because it's by her Brits. I, I feel I should mention a little more about the music video because there's a lovely interview with Herb. Sadly, he has passed, but from the time period in which he talks about directing this video. So there's a few anecdotes flying around from the time. So sh what I love about uh, Madonna's career, which we have touched on before, is that she really connects with other creatives and pushes them forward and champions them. And Herb is one of these people that she becomes friends with. And so she'd said to him on a photo shoot, I want you to do my next video. And he only had two weeks to learn how to direct and film, which, you know, sounds crazy now, but you can see the sort of fun in the video. He shot it handheld. Apparently you can see that in the way it's shot. It's all on 60 millimeter film. And there were two setups, one on the beach, which is the majority of it. And another one, which are the underwater scenes filmed in a pool in Hollywood. And apparently the day was freezing cold and Madonna was getting in and out of the water. But of course she is the utmost professional and so so just looks ravishing and summary i think in this video you see the clear knowledge of references that both herb and madonna have for example the uh, merman tales you know the formations that they form are very like busby berkeley sort of 
early 20th century imagery. And again, like I mentioned with the photo shoot, which I think was taken on the same day, it's, it's got a reference to these Marilyn Monroe pictures on the beach, which were by George Barris in the early sixties. So, so I feel like they really know the references and it's coming out in this new form. What's interesting about the video is you've got her rich shooting. It could have just been him shooting her on the beach. It's really complicated video because you've got the prosthetics. You've got mm. they um, they were uh, they weren't trained dancers. They were athletes. I think they did a water polo. Um, it's our first introduction to Tony Ward, isn't it? Yeah. In, it is our first uh, introduction to Tony Ward as well. <laughs> and apparently, a, a very young Kim Kardashian was watching the the shoot. Mm. Uh, as well. So when you imagine what this beach actually looks like, you imagine it as this big deserted stretch. But if you, you can go on Google Earth and look at it, it's only a tiny bit of that. Uh, it's very quite, you know, like a lot of places in California, there's a pier there and, and shops and stuff like that. Um, he, he jokingly did say that the budget wasn't big and all the money went on those mermaid tails. <laughs> but it's seamless. Like the amount of effort you would... <laughs> some idiot director would waste now doing it in CG and it's just mm. so seamless and so beautiful. And yeah, I, I, I watched it this morning just to refresh myself, but yeah, it's just lovely. Mm. So Dear Jesse, which of course was released as a single in the UK. Now I was really pleased when it was released as a single, cause I really liked the song and it was really different. Some people really hate the song and think it was a mad release. And I suppose when we didn't get Oh Father at the time, I can understand that. But the, the, the cover, I mean, it's Herb Rich shoot again, but from much earlier. And the typography, is, they're both insane to, to have used that on a mm. single cover. Um, it, it's, it is Herb that took the picture, isn't it? From, from 87, I think. Exactly. So it's an 87 shoot with Herb around about the time of True Blue. And I always found that quite uh, astounding that they would go back to a previous campaign, particularly because she's such a visual artist. And there was a lot of photography floating around from this time. But I understand the Mickey Mouse ears, it's childlike, that, that does make sense. I think they did a decent job superimposing the little elephant. But to me, that gave it the nice connection. Hmm. It, it could have been that they had been brave again and they didn't maybe need the photo of Madonna on it. The, I think the video is one of those things that's like a pivot point in Madonna's career where it's like, if you are turned into Tinkerbell and people recognize you, you must hmm. have made it. So it was just a, a, a beautiful visual break that like, uh, song with so much connection to like 1960s and there's a bit of Beatles mania in there and Yellow Submarine and then to inject all of that into this beautiful music video and then just pull a little bit of it and put it onto the artwork. I, it's not great but it sort of works. I, I kind of love that it was a single. I think it's such a, an unusual choice but really shows that Madonna wasn't a one-trick pony and has a very different side to her. I mean this is one of the albums in which almost any song has single quality when you're that level of star and yeah my my one thing is because i'm so attuned to each era of madonna when i look at her face in that single cover i can see it's madonna from earlier in the 80s it's not madonna from 89 further reading browsing whatever so further browsing there are so many photographs from this time period as we have mentioned she is at the zenith of her career or one of many of her career so highly in demand. So she's done a lot of magazine shoots. The first thing that springs to mind when I think of additional photographs is just to go and look up as many of the Herb Brits images from this time as you can. You can easily find it on Google. And there's quite a few setups. I think there's about five or six, which I can imagine is shot over a few days. This artwork, which is featured in here, both in the 
graveyard, which is the Hollywood Forever Cemetery on Santa Monica Boulevard. From that, there's two or three looks. So we've got the strapless look. We've got an, another top. The second top look, which has got a, a cap sleeve shoulder, I really love. She looks very pretty in these images. It's a lot softer and there's a lot of religious iconography. We've got a, a massive crucifix in a lot of the images. And then a few which aren't as successful and I have hardly ever seen the images of, which are interior shots. I think some of them are artificially lit. They're not particularly flattering. The colors are a bit strange. Often they look oversaturated or overexposed. And that's the pictures where she has this middle parting with very flat hair. And I think I can imagine she wasn't so hot on those ones. So they're a bit harder to find, but definitely worth looking up. The second from this period, I think, which is interesting is just being able to look at her two Rolling Stone covers from the single year of 1989. One's in March, one's in September. And if you look at the contrast, only a few months apart, we've got the brunette, very like a prayer style, wavy brown hair. And then by September, we've got the cherished look that we mentioned earlier with the blonde hair in the camera and completely different aesthetics, very close together. I just love that that's so Madonna to be able to do that. Finally, I love the shoot that she did with Patrick de Marchelier in which she has the blonde streaked hair. There's so few images of her from that time. You mentioned it earlier and it ended up being the cover story for American Vogue in May 89. Funnily enough, they actually retouched the blonde streak out of her hair for the cover. So it looks brown, um, but inside you can see the photos and, and the photographs inside are very opulent and also very short lived period for Madonna. It's, it's sort of almost for this shoot that she does this aesthetic choice. The styling is quite odd. It's almost Moroccan and she doesn't really look like herself. I mean, she is a chameleon obviously, but I think that's a particularly interesting one. Peter, what would you um, suggest people looked at? I've got two, uh, one of them, I'm oh, sorry, it is a little bit sad, but the lady who did all of the work for, um, the logo of like press, she actually died in 2017. Mm. Um, but to go back and look at her body of work. So we talked about like the Paula Abdul and the Prince work that she did. Just incredibly gifted typographer and illustrator and to be able to bring those two skills together. And um, her friends actually made a really sweet documentary about her. It's only 20 minutes long, but there's a few Madonna bits. There's, um, they put together like a gallery exhibition of all of her work. This amazing side wall to open the exhibition is just the Like a Prayer logo. It's like eight foot by six foot. It's just beautiful to see it there. So yeah, incredibly talented woman. And I think if you can give 20 minutes to go and watch the documentary, it's well worth it. And the other one to counterbalance it, um, is actually a behind the scenes of Dear Jesse on a, a quite controversial program with Rolf Harris from when <laughs> we would have been about 11 or 12. Um, he had a TV show that was on, um, most sort of tea times where he taught kids how to draw. And it is actually an interview with the producers of the video and the, you actually see him hand drawing like the little Aladdin teapot type character. So yeah, mm. I, I will, I will put that out there so people can enjoy that or not enjoy it. So what can we expect for the upcoming reissue? Well, hopefully something considerably more impressive than the streaming 30th anniversary edition put out by her record company. First of all, there are so many released remixes of the songs. Like a Prayer in particular has a range of mixes by Bill Bottrell and by Shep, and they're very varied. Some of the Shep mixes have never had a widespread commercial release, though they're kind of all variations on his house dance mix. Express Yourself has fewer versions, but what might be lurking in the vaults? 
Cherish only had an edit and an extended version, but Keep It Together had a variety of mixes by Stephen Bray and by Shep. Plus, what else might there be? There's certainly a rumoured extended version of Love Song made by Prince. As for the demos, well, we've heard Like a Prayer and Cherish. Perhaps they might consider releasing more. Then there's the B-side Supernatural and the unreleased songs Angels with Dirty Faces never got a commercial release, but maybe it can get a CD quality issue of the demo. Madonna's version of Just a Dream, supposedly very similar to Donna DeLore's 1991 version, and perhaps there's also a Madonna-only version of Possessive Love, the song she wrote for Marilyn Martin. And we know of two unused Stephen Bray songs, First a Kiss, a song about the people who died of AIDS, and another song, Love Attack, a great title, and I would love to hear it. Finally, there's her song, I Surrender Dear, recorded for the movie Blood Hands of Broadway, but never released. This podcast is free and will remain free. However, you can say thank you and get extra content by becoming a patron and paying a small amount every month to get that extra goodies to get episodes in advance. You can do that at www.insidethegroove.co.uk. And honestly, it's what motivates me and what keeps me going. So do give it some thought. Thank you so much for your attention. Oh Father was released as the fourth single from Like a Prayer at the end of 1989. Only available in the US, Canada, Japan and Australia, its chart impact was minimal despite a stunning video directed by David Fincher, though us British fans didn't get to see it until the VHS of Immaculate Collection. It remains co-writer and co-producer Patrick Leonard's favourite Madonna collaboration. The songwriting process was essentially the same. Patrick would get to the studio early in the morning and come up with a basic structure. Madonna would arrive and would listen to the track he'd created. Often melody would be suggested and if there was no melody she would come up with something. Pat would say this is the chorus, this is the verse and often she would say no, it's the other way around. She would write the lyrics and later in the day when he had worked on the music some more, they'd record a vocal. Often it was the first time that she sang the song. And just to be clear on that, she hadn't actually had those words come out of her mouth before. So anyone that says Madonna can't sing, I mean, that is such a skill. And I've worked with very skilled, very clever singers, and they can't do that. They have to live with a song for a long time before they can get the emotional impact out. Like a Prayer has got quite a unique sound as an album. There's a lot of live instrumentation and synth bass, which is quite a way away from True Blue, which was very synth heavy, although with quite a bit of bass guitar. If you get a chance, check out the album Bête Noire, which is a Patrick Leonard production with the singer Brian Ferry of Roxy Music, and it was recorded in the months just before Like a Prayer, and it sounds really quite like Like a Prayer at times, the album that is. Um, It's a really interesting listen. A lot of people have assumed that Madonna is, of course, singing about her own father, and that's certainly insinuated in the video too. Madonna herself said to Craig Ronson, author of Billboard Book of Number One Albums, Oh, Father is like the second half of Live to Tell in a way. It was a combo package. It was about my father and my husband. I was dealing with male authority figures once again. That is a great source of inspiration in my writing. Pat Leonard has spoken quite a few times about the recording of Oh Father, but he always tells the same story, that they pressed record three times. The song was played live, even the synths. Those three times, well, once when they recorded the track as a band, him, keyboardist Jay Winding, bassist Guy Pratt, a guitarist, a percussionist and a drummer, and of course Madonna on the vocals. 
They pressed record again when they recorded the orchestra all as one take, and a third time during the mixing process when Bill Buttrell suggested a doubling of Madonna's vocals in the chorus. But I want to say we hit record only twice, Patrick Leonard said to Bill, and Bill said, "Come on, three times isn't bad." Guy Pratt has got a podcast with Gary Kemp called Rock on Tours, and recently Patrick Leonard was a guest, and he talked about the recording of Oh Father. Guy had the same story as he recounted to Lucy O'Brien for the Like an Icon book, that when they were rehearsing, Madonna was singing the song all the way through, but still could give notes afterwards to everybody in the band on how they played and how they could play better. Back in 2014, Pat said to Keith Caulfield of Billboard, "My favourite thing we ever recorded, ever or wrote, is 'Oh Father.' To me, it is the best thing we ever did. So it didn't surprise me because we knew when we did it that there was something about this that was, in a kind of way, the most real thing." I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast about some of my friends that didn't make it through to the end of 1989. I remember one friend, Lindsay, who absolutely loved Madonna and loved Oh Father, and he would change the lyrics to "Lay Down Next to My Boobs," <laughs> and it would just make us laugh so much. And he knew he had AIDS, and he knew he was dying. And whenever I hear this song, I think of Lindsay, and I wonder what he would make. Of everything that's around today, so I'd like to dedicate this episode to Lindsay and my other friends who died of AIDS, Donna's friends who died of AIDS, and anyone you knew. And I'd also like to dedicate it to Madonna, who saved us. That leaflet saved me, without a doubt. So sometimes Madonna gets accused of appropriating gay culture, but as Peter said, she's given back. And she deserves some slack. And would you believe it? There are some Madonna fans who attack me and other older fans on Twitter, say that we're not really Madonna fans. Well, we are. We were there. Head over to the website www.insidethegroove.co.uk to check out the merchandise, including a brand new range designed by Peter, inspired by these 1980s albums. Also consider becoming a patron or offering a donation if you enjoy this podcast. Next, I'm breathless. Breathless.